0: Section 10 of Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Campbell Shelp. Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright. A Study by Hamilton Fife. Section 10 Manners and Morals. Up to 1899, then, Mr. Pinero had written four plays of serious intent, all dealing with the relations between men and women. Two of them showed how impossible it is for a man or a woman to get rid of the burden of an evil past. The other two pointed out the obstacles that lie in the way of mere friendship between the sexes. So far, Mr. Pinero seemed to have based his serious work upon a settled view of life and human nature. A sound view, a broad view, a view that experience and intuition alike supported. But in 1899 came the Gay Lord Quacks. The theory of Mr. Pinero's settled view seemed to be overturned. Most people could see no sign in this brilliantly clever play of anything but an anxiety to make the most of exceptionally interesting dramatic material. If the Gay Lord Quacks expressed any view at all, it appeared to be a view directly opposite to that which its author expounded in The Profligate. Here was Quex, the wickedest man in London, according to Sophie Fulgarney, who knows most things, able to shake off his burden of loose living and settle down, apparently a model husband with the typical creamy English girl, Muriel Eden. He has reformed, it is true, but so had Dunstan Renshaw. He is genuinely in love, but Renshaw's passion was no less genuine. All the force that there was in Mr. Pinero's handling of the profligate theme seemed to be dissipated by the manner in which he treated the same subject in The Gay Lord Quacks. But was this the final word on the subject? How if the object of the latter play was to show what a low tone of morals and manners prevailed in society at the close of the nineteenth century? How if the whole piece was conceived in a mood of bitter irony? If it were so, you may reply, there would surely be one character to act the part of the ancient chorus, to indicate, not necessarily by words but by general attitude of mind, that the author's purpose was satire, to represent a higher type than the Quexes and the Fraynes and the Bastlings and the Mrs. Jack Edens of this world. For dramatic purposes we must have contrast, and that is just what we miss in The Gay Lord Quex." There is weight in these arguments, I admit, but I am inclined to believe, I wish to believe, that they can be answered. Look at the plays of the eighteenth-century dramatists. They are valuable beyond compare as evidence of the prevailing tone of the age in which they were written. It is not at least possible that Mr. Pinero set himself the task of drawing a picture of decadent society as it appeared to him, and leaving the spectators each to draw the moral for himself. It is true the Gaylord Quex gives us the unpleasant sensation of having passed an evening with a collection of people whom we dislike and despise. But is not that just the impression which Mr. Pinero intended it to produce? He takes a theatre full of people, five-sixths of whom are dominated by an absurd reverence for rank and fashion, and he shows them how exceedingly unpleasant people of rank and fashion can be, He shows that, to amplify a verdict said to have been passed by one ornament of society upon another in recent years, they have the manners of organ-grinders and the morals of monkeys. Naturally, then, in such a play as this, we miss any appeal to the heart. It makes its appeal entirely to the head. There is no one with whom we really sympathize, except, perhaps, the dear old lady whose hospitality and confidence are so shamefully abused.' Muriel Eden is a featureless society doll with just enough cunning to carry on an intrigue, even after she is engaged to quacks with a young man of whom she knows nothing. As for Captain Basling, the young man in question, we know that he is stupid, and we are told that he is immoral, a very unattractive combination. Mr. Pinero, by the way, has a poor opinion of young men. Renshaw, Ardale, Bastling, Denstrode, all are of the same vicious type, and naturally enough they develop into the Quexes and the Franes and the Peter Darmans and the St. Alfertses of middle and later life. As for Sophie Fulgarney, she is a wonderfully interesting study, but Quex is right when he calls her in his elegant way, "'A low spy, an impudent, bare-faced liar,' a common kitchen cat who wriggles into the best rooms, gets herself fondled, and then spits. Quex is interesting, too, but he is three parts a cad as well as a hunter after sordid, commonplace adventures, lacking the excuse even of romance or passion. Consider the course of the plot for a moment. Sophie, the new Bond Street manicurist, is Muriel Eden's foster sister. She is capable common to a degree in manner and mind, warm-hearted, excitable. She is the daughter of a bailiff on the Eden estates, but her character is that of a typical London gaming. The Edens have set her up in Bond Street, which shows an amazing ignorance on their part of the usual nature of the manicuring industry, and the two girls have kept up their childish affection. When the Marquise of Quex, with a reputation that is only faintly enumbrated, by the epithet gay, has offered himself, at the age of forty-eight, and been accepted by Muriel under pressure of her family, Sophie is sorely troubled at the thought of her darling being sacrificed to an old rake. She determines to catch Quex tripping if she can, for Muriel, who has listened to squalid records of her future husband's gaieties, avows that, if she found him up to anything of the sort now, she would break off her engagement and marry Basling. But Quex is not to be caught by the pretty manicurists' sly blandishments. A kiss or a squeeze of the waist, anything of that sort would do, but Sophie looks and sighs and pouts all in vain. This method failing, she will spy upon him and find out whether any other succeeds where she has failed. Soon she does find something out. The Duchess of Stroud a foolish, extravagantly sentimental creature of thirty-seven has been one of Lord Quex's chere amis, and, much to his annoyance, she demands a farewell scene. She is staying with Quex's aunt at Richmond, and for some unaccountable reason he consents to a parting in keeping with their great attachment in the boudoir adjoining her bedroom late at night. By chance, Sophie, who has been allowed to spend an afternoon in the grounds, overhears enough to guess that something of the kind is intended, and her suspicions are strengthened when the duchess announces that she has had to send her maid home. She rises to the occasion and offers to take the absent maid's place. Then, of course, all happens in due course. Quex goes to the duchess's apartments merely to return her presents, and presently Sophie is discovered at the keyhole. The scene which follows between Quex and the girl who is determined to ruin his chance with Miss Eden is the most ingenious Mr. Pinero has ever written. The Duchess has been sent away by Quex to share a friend's room on pretense of nerves. He remains to try and save her reputation, even if he cannot mend his own. His offers of money are scornfully rejected. Sophie will tell all she knows— which is not much, for Quex has been iced to his old flame's blandishments and disclosed the damning fact of his midnight visit. Quex's next move is more effective than the attempt to buy silence. He has locked the doors of the rooms, and he declares that if Sophie denounces him, she shall denounce herself too. She may rouse the house, but the Duchess is safe. Sophie and Quex will be found alone." Her story will not be believed. Her character will be gone. Neither her rage nor her appeals have any effect. At last, in her dread of such an exposure, which would also mean the ending of her own engagement to a Bond Street palmist, the girl consents to hold her tongue. She is made to write a letter which puts her in Quex's power, if ever he should produce it, and she turns to go. But suddenly the thought of Muriel comes into her head, "'Why, it's like selling Muriel,' she cries. "'Just to get myself out of this, I'm simply handing her over to you. "'I won't do it. I won't.' And she pulls violently at the bell. Her sudden, self-sacrificing change of front has a remarkable effect on the man. Mumbling words of admiration, he thrusts the letter into her hand, unlocks the door leading to her bedroom, and flings it open.' But first the awakened servants at the other door must be dismissed with some explanation of the loud ringing. A message about the Duchess's letters in the morning is invented by Quex, and when Sophie, all unnerved and almost hysterical, has repeated it and totters across the room, he speaks in an altered tone. Be off, he says kindly. Go to bed. Serve me how you please. Miss Fulgarney, upon my soul I... I humbly beg your pardon. And the curtain falls on Sophie's, God bless you, you're a gentleman, I'll do what I can for you. No one, however much they disliked the piece as a whole, could deny the great power and grip of this remarkable scene. Given the characters of Quex and Sophie, it is thoroughly natural, full of observation and of absorbing interest. No one who saw it on the night of the first performance, when the house was in the dark as to how the scene would end, is likely to forget the intensity with which it was followed, or the outburst of applause, of pent-up excitement and admiration, at the close of the act. Nothing more ingenious in this kind, nothing cleverer, has been written by an English playwright since Sheridan wrote the screen scene in The School for Scandal. After this, nothing remains but to get Bastling out of the way, and this is accomplished by Sophie without any difficulty at all. She has somehow or other overlooked this delightful young man's real character. Quex tells her, however, that he's just what I was at eight and twenty, what I was, and worse, and Sophie now determines to apply to him the same test by which Quex's fidelity to Muriel was proved. Basling falls into the trap at once, Her suggestion, that she would appreciate a little more than plain thanks for her help to him and to Muriel, leads to a kiss. Muriel is a witness, and Basling hurries out like a whipped dog. So far as the audience has had its sympathies aroused at all, they are now with Queps, and the curtain falls upon the prospect of Muriel's early marriage to him. No romance here, and, according to my view, no suggestion of romance intended— just a picture of the way in which marriage was regarded and everyday life in London lived at the end of the nineteenth century. Not a pleasant picture, not a picture that makes us feel more reconciled to the ugliness of life, but one that may brace us up, nevertheless, by bringing us face to face with facts, and filling us with a healthy disgust of the kind of world in which the Quexes and the Sophie Fulgarneys live and move and have their restless, worthless being." If a poet, and dramatists are poets, even though they never write verse, can make us face life with renewed confidence and vitality, and can tune our minds to, Oh, world as God has made it, all is beauty, he is beyond question a benefactor to his age. But as our bodies sometimes need unpleasant medicine, medicine which perhaps makes us worse before we are better, so do our minds now and then require an astringent tonic, some plain presentment of unpleasant facts that pulls us up short and sets us thinking of the goal whither we tend. Such a tonic was the gay Lord Quex. I am afraid most people regarded it merely in the light of an exciting entertainment akin to lion-taming or walking the slack wire, a performance that stirred their sluggish interest and helped them to get through an evening without being bored. That is why, even though I cling to the hope that Mr. Pinero meant it to be something more than this— I am sorry that a serious purpose was not more definitely indicated. Now, in Iris, a serious purpose was indicated beyond all doubt. Everyone is agreed upon that, even the casual playgoer who pronounced it dull. But as soon as you inquire what Mr. Pinero's purpose was, agreement vanishes. A hundred voices offer a hundred varying explanations. Here is one apologist inviting you to consider Mrs. Bellamy the victim of circumstances— "'The fate of Iris,' he cries, "'might be the fate of any moderately good woman against whom chance and Mr. Frederick Maldonado incessantly warred. That acute student, Mr. W. L. Courtney, tells us that Iris is merely weak, not wicked, and that Mr. Pinero meant to show how wrong it is to let oneself drift, or to be too fond of soft cushions and the sunny side of the street of human life.' A third suggestion is that Iris is a thoroughly bad woman. A fourth, that she is at heart a thoroughly good woman, sorely sinned against, and so on to the hundredth, possibly beyond. After studying the play with care, both in the theatre and from the printed page, I think there can be no doubt that Iris is a worthless woman, weak, self-indulgent, and incapable of appreciating what is right and what wrong, not an immoral woman, but a non-moral one who lacks both the willpower and the intelligence to grasp even the outlines of morality. She seems to be, in this respect, intended as a contrast to Mrs. Tanqueray, and even more so to Agnes Ebsmith. Both Paula and Agnes knew well enough when they were so acting as to be true to themselves, to the better instincts of their natures. When they were false to those instincts, they were deliberately false." They allowed their passions or their worst instincts to carry them away with the full knowledge that they must in some way pay the price for self-indulgence. Of such natures is the stuff of drama compounded. In a play you want a conflict between the force of will and some opposing force. It may chance of nature or of some other will. Your characters must know their own minds. They must aim at something, whether a good end or a bad. In the larger drama of existence also, the men and women who play the prominent parts are those who of set purpose shape means to ends. Of the nerveless, the undetermined, nothing is to be hoped. The world has no use for them. If a man or a woman is wicked energetically and deliberately chooses to be wicked, there is a chance that some day they may alter their line of conduct and may benefit society instead of harming it. They say best men are molded out of faults, and oftentimes become much more the better for being a little bad. Much better have them in your community than people who are merely good from unthinking habit, and who, if it became fashionable to lie and steal, would eschew truth and honesty as readily as they now profess these virtues. The bitterest fate of all in Dante's Inferno was reserved for the souls of those che viser senza infamia e senza lodo who in their lives earned neither praise nor blame heaven cast them forth lest they should stain its fair courts hell would have none of them for even in hell the wicked would have taken place above them gesti non hanno speranza di morte e la loro vita è tanto bassa che indivosi son d'ogni altra these have no hope of death and their blind life so meanly drags that they are envious of every other fate among these wretched spirits dante would i fancy have placed the soul of iris bellamy she answers to the letter his description of the feeble folk that caitiff choir of angels who are neither rebels nor god's faithful servants but thought of their own selfish interests alone observe how this selfishness colours every act of iris bellamy's life she cannot make up her mind to marry lawrence trenwith because she loses her fortune if she marries again yet she feels that if she is left to herself, she is in danger of marrying him and so becoming poor. What does she do? Stiffen her resolution and stand firm? No, she decides to accept an offer of marriage from Maldonado, her millionaire admirer. She does not love him, she does not like him even as a lover. But he is rich, and her engagement sets up a barrier between Lawrence and herself. Well, at all events, she has taken a step— I had nearly written a decisive step, but it is only decisive until she next sees Lawrence alone, which is a few hours later. Looking into his eyes, feeling his kiss hot upon her lips, she casts away her anchor, breaks her word to Maldonado, and accepts Trenwith as a lover. She will not have a poor man for a husband, but she has no objection to making this young man play an unpleasantly equivocal part, no reluctance to become his mistress.' The boy, however, has a sense of what befits a man. He cannot earn a living at home. His only chance is to farm in Canada. Iris is incapable of understanding why he declines to live upon her money, equally unable to see why he will not agree to accept some suitable occupation in town, a secretaryship, for instance, that imaginary refuge of the incapable and the unlucky the sort of billet, as Lawrence says, that provides a man with gloves and cab fares and a flower for his coat. She has no conception of the feelings that spur a man on to be independent and to make a place for himself in the world. She has always taken, as they came, the good things with which from childhood fortune has furnished her, has always been profuse, extravagant, with money earned by other people. Why should Lawrence insist upon talking about that terrible ranch at Chilcotton, What does his career matter? Why cannot he snuggle down comfortably, as she has done, and make an ignoble ease his only aim in life? Another time is her cry when he speaks of the possibility of her joining him on the ranch and becoming his wife. Let us discuss the point another time. Before another time arrives, the news comes that Iris has lost her fortune. Her solicitor and trustee has fled, leaving Rune behind him, a timely hit this in 1901. All that is left to her is a beggarly a hundred fifty pounds a year. Surely she need not any longer stand out against Lawrence's pleading. There is no reason whatever why she should. He offers her independence and a home, not luxurious, but as comfortable as she can make in England on her a hundred fifty pounds a year, and if she loves him as she protests—but is it a case of the lady protesting too much? She does, it is true—announce her engagement to Trenwith immediately— but she will not go to Canada with him. He can make a home and come back for her in a few years' time. Evidently, she counts unconsciously upon something better turning up in the meantime, thinks, perhaps, that her £150 will go some way towards comfort and cheap pensions. She knows little enough about them, shrinks at any rate from the idea of the ranch. But, of course, she does not put it in this way, even to herself. She persuades herself that she is acting nobly, she tells Lawrence that he would despise her if he recollected that she declined to marry him when she was well off. That it wasn't until I was poor, almost as poor as yourself, that I would marry you, and that then I promptly hung myself round your neck like a stone. And to Lawrence, reminding her that, whenever she joins him, she will still be a poor woman, she talks in this exalted strain. She will go to him after I have had my own struggle, my own battle with poverty, singly, alone, after I have proved to you that I can live patiently, uncomplainingly, without luxury, willingly relinquishing costly pleasures, content with the barest comfort, yes, yes, after I have shown you that there are other and better and deeper qualities in my nature than you have suspected, than I myself have suspected, then, then I'll join you, Laurie. She deceives herself, She deceives her lover, she deceives her friends. And when a woman of this character begins to suffer from the delusion that there are hidden depths of gold in the trashy ore of her nature, she becomes more dangerous than ever. This is the mood in which she works the most complete destruction. One friend, however, is not deceived. Maldonado knows pretty well the nature of the woman in whose pursuit the sting of passion keeps him steadfast. He plays the part of the magnanimous friend— takes Lawrence under his especial care, sees him off with false good nature and a devilish chuckle, then goes back to bid Iris farewell and to leave with her a checkbook that she can use at will. She protests that she will never use it, is angered when he insists upon leaving it for her to destroy. A sudden need for money to satisfy a generous impulse sends her to it, thoughtlessly perhaps. Yet, when she realizes that she has used one of Maldo's checks, she does not tear it up, nor when the servant comes to take her dressing-bag does she forget to drop the check-book into it and then of course almost from the very moment of my receiving it my hand accustomed itself to scrawling checks for one object and another until the account considerately opened by maldonado is overdrawn this naturally enough brings malda to her side pocket-book in hand but the repulsion he excites is still strong enough to stimulate her to flight then follows a period of poverty Why does not Iris write to Trenwith to say that she is in dire need? It is hard to say. Mr. Pinero offers us no help. Perhaps she still calculated on something turning up. No doubt the idea of the ranch was still distasteful. She thought at first she could live upon her friends. But they turned their backs upon her, all but Maldonado. He furnished a flat close to his house in Mount Street. He kept it ready for occupation at any moment he was always on the lookout for the tenant he meant to have. And one evening, when Iris was at her last shilling almost, he met her and gave her the key, and she, she used it. Thus the fourth act of the play shows Iris in this flat with Maldonado, still her lover. More her lover than ever, it seems, for he is urging her to marry him and to accept a settled position. He admits that he has treated her a bit roughly and frankly owns that he meant to have his revenge, if he could get it, for her caprice in throwing him over for a lover. Now he is anxious to make it up to her. But Iris still dreams of the time for Trenwith's return. It does not occur to her that the altered state of her life will alter Laurie's love for her or interfere with their plans. By this time, he must have made a fairly comfortable home. She will be delighted to leave Maldonado and to go away with the man she loves. So she puts Maldo off, asks for time, promises to think it over. A few minutes later comes the one old friend who has been faithful with the news that Trenwith is back in England. Her instant thought is that the old friend shall act as a go-between. Her undeveloped moral sense sees no reason why he should dislike the office. His protest she meets with an air of pained surprise. In the end, however, he undertakes to let Trenwith know where she is. The same evening Trenwith appears and Iris stammers out her story. She is plainly incapable of perceiving anything in it except that she has had an unpleasant time and deserves sympathy. When Lawrence has heard her to the end and, murmuring incoherent words, takes up his hat and coat, she finds it hard to believe that he intends to leave her. Even then she cannot see things as they are. It is the little good in her that has proved her downfall. It was her love for Lawrence that prompted her first downward step. So she discovers her excuses." but they are powerless to stay Trenwith's Steps. He stumbles out, dazed with the shame and distress of her story, and then comes Maldonado, wild with rage, having discovered his mistress's deceit and heard all from the neighboring room. His first impulse is to kill her, but he subdues it and turns her out into the night. And when she has gone, his wild anger returns, and the curtain falls upon him as he breaks everything within his reach. Not an edifying story, was the general verdict, but no doubt a lifelike picture it lacked some of its likeness to life on the stage because Iris was played by an actress unsuited to the part. Miss Fay Davis was unequal to realizing such a character as that of Iris. Her ingenue moods and graces were irritating; they stood between the audience and the dramatist's intention. At least this is the impression that a reading of the play leaves on the mind. It is essentially a study of one woman, and it demands a really great actress to interpret it, an actress who can express experience and intuition in terms of emotion. Mr. Pinero concentrated all his efforts upon the portrayal of Iris, and his effort has lost half its effect, so far as the theatre is concerned, because it was not seconded by his chief player. The minor characters have less to do in this than in any other of the dramas we have been considering. The actual writing is simpler." The play contains few of these biting phrases that stick in the memory and show us the value to a playwright of a pretty wit aided by a full notebook. It is not even constructed with Mr. Pinero's usual deftness. There is one piece of extremely clever stagecraft, the scene in which Maldonado finds the fragments of a letter that tells him of Trenwith's intended visit to Iris. By making him put the fragments together, and then silently extract the latchkey from an ornament where he has placed it just before, the author conveys to the audience, without a word spoken, the nature of the development they are to expect. The scene which shows the reception of the news that Mr. Archie Keene, the well known solicitor, has decamped, is very naturally conceived and written too. But, taken as a whole, the piece cannot be considered to represent worthily Mr. Pinero's standard of craftsmanship. The division of acts into scenes, the long interval which the spectator's imagination has to bridge over between the end of the third act, when Iris begins her life of hardship, tempered by Maldo's check-book, and the opening of the fourth, which shows her in Maldo's flat, the sketchy treatment of side issues, all are signs that the author's interest was in the play of character alone. And it was a masterly study of character that he gave us, even though Iris is not a masterly play. It is, it seems to me, the one play which he has written rather in order to follow out his own interest in his subject than to make an effective stage piece. In each of the others, he sacrificed something in order to be dramatic. In Iris, it was drama that went by the board. We must look to Mr. Pinero's future for a work that shall be, like Iris, the result of keen interest in some particular problem of character and which shall, at the same time, be constructed with the ingenuity and the apt employment of convention that must go to the making of a perfect play. It was said that after Iris, Mr. Pinero had no intention to write more serious plays. The announcement was, of course, very wide of the mark if we had no other indication that Mr. Pinero feels within his mind, the seeds of many other such works, we have at any rate the closing words of his introduction to Mr. W. L. Courtney's interesting and illuminating essay on The Idea of Tragedy, 1900. And now, my dear Courtney, you tell us you perceive signs encouraging you to hope that the tragic idea may yet find fruitful stimulus in the great tumult of imperial emotions at present stirring the world spirit of our peoples, with all my heart, I trust it may prove so, and that we poor modern playwrights will not be found wanting, at least in the endeavor to respond to lofty and heroic inspiration. End of section ten.